This is a kick in the grass with Dan Riccio and Jeff Blair on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Another edition of a kick in the grass. Dan Riccio and Jeff Blair here with you. Follow us on Twitter at Dan Riccio underscore and at SN Jeff Blair. Our DMs are open. That's where you can send questions for the show to our inboxes. We'll answer as many as we can at the end in the Injury Time segment. If you're enjoying us, hit that subscribe button on your preferred podcatcher so that way you never miss an episode. We appreciate if you'd leave a review as well. Our guests today, Janine Becky, Canadian International and Manchester City Forward will join us, and Jonathan Johnson, league uh, experts on Jonathan David's patchy start, but maybe finding himself now after his first goal this weekend. Jeff, what's going on? You know, another weekend of uh, watching United and just shaking my head, pacing. <laughs> and then waiting for Bruno Fernandes to get a penalty? Uh, well, exactly. Yeah, that, that's <laughs> that's exactly it. And then, when he, you know, I got to tell you the truth. When he took the first penalty and it was saved, I, I just left the room. I didn't see the, I honestly got I did not. I did not see the second one. I just I got up and left and went upstairs and came back down and oh what's this about so yeah i uh it's boy it's just so 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 hard to watch and i'll tell you what um i'm so happy there are no fans in the stands at old trafford i really am i you know like uh they've been saved by so many penalties uh, over the oh. last little while i i think two-thirds in all competitions of all the goals bruno fernandez has scored two-thirds have come from the penalty spot um, I mean, that's that seems like an inordinately high number, uh, even as, you know, we're in this day and age now where penalties kind of rule the game thanks to VAR and the new handball rule. But uh, it's uh, it's keeping Manchester United alive and they have a game in hand. If they win that match, they are four points off the top, Jeff. So I tell you what, they're they're back in the top ten. <laughs> <laughs> Reason to celebrate. Yeah, Manchester is red again as uh, City are, are uh, below the, the 10 spot uh, after their loss uh, to Spurs this weekend. Mourinho uh, beats his old foe once again, Pep Guardiola, in, um, you know, like what was just a, a fascinating tactical battle on the weekend, Jeff. You know, I, I, I know um, Pep loves to play that free-flowing football, but... Um, Mourinho and parking the bus and just being tactically astute in how to counter against Manchester City. Uh, I thought it was a brilliant chess match that uh, Jose won. Yeah, I think what was the comment after the match? Uh, this, a, a reporter pointed out to Jose that uh, that Manchester City had 80% possession and uh, or 80, they, they had the ball 80% of the time. And I think his comment was, <laughs> that's good. They can keep the ball and go home with it. I'll take the three points. <laughs> uh, look, it, it, it was vintage, vintage Mourinho. And, and you know what I think is really fascinating about Tottenham? And I know you, I'm going to give you credit because you've been in Tottenham from the start. I'm still not sold on them, but you've been in Tottenham from the start. So full credit to you. But what I find fascinating about Mourinho is how Harry Kane seems to, he seems to have become an even more influential and a more important player in Jose Mourinho's system than, than he was before. Um, you know, a lot of commentators, Dan, made, made the point that that was a, you know, a dominating performance for a guy who didn't score and whose team probably only had 25% of the possession or something like that. Harry Kane has gone from being, I think in some ways, a one-dimensional striker to just... He's almost like a Swiss Army knife now as a forward. There's a lot of things he can do. Uh, he gets involved in the buildup. He's not just there at the end. His I don't know what his work rate numbers are, but he seems to be he seems to be all over the place in a constructive way in Jose's system compared to what he was in in, in Pochettino's system. And I'm really impressed. He I never thought I'd say it, but. Harry Kane might be a striker whose game is going to be raised uh, by playing for Jose Mourinho. It's uh, it's so funny, like to to think about how Pep kind of uh, when Pep took over at Barcelona, we were touting the the end of the number nine, and here 
uh, Harry Kane as a traditional center forward uh, just put in an absolutely dominating performance. But you can see the evolution of the player, right, of that position in Harry Kane, a guy who is uh, the traditional number nine but doing so much more than just poaching the goals. Mm -hmm. Right, he he was fouled six times. He, uh, I think, he had three total tackles. He was equal parts facilitator and agitator towards Manchester City's midfield and back line. Uh, his his run off the ball for Human Son's opening goal uh, it did everything to to start the match for Tottenham. I I, I mean, I, I don't think I've ever seen this. Might be hyperbole because how many performances do you remember for a striker that he doesn't actually score but I think this was the best performance I'd ever seen from a striker who did not score a goal in the match he was just he, he was an un unbelievable incredible yeah it, I mean it's hard to argue with that it it really is and you know in, in addition to son the what I'm really enjoying seeing in in Tottenham is watching how Sergio Regulon has has kind of fit into the flow of their attack and watching how Harry Kane plays off him and vice versa. It, that's the thing. It's not just Kane and Son. It's it's it, Kane is in the middle of everything involving every player. And and that's as I said, that's not something I I I thought I'd I'd see from Harry Kane. And I, look, I was one of those guys that thought Harry Kane was going to be unhappy playing for Jose Mourinho. Uh, he was going to be unhappy playing for a team that wasn't con contending for trophies. You know, I thought at some point he'd want to move on. And who knows? He still may. At some point, somebody may throw great gobs of money at him and he may move on. But, man, he is, uh, again, Jose Mourinho has brought out the best in him. And you know what? It's it's odd to say, but in addition to doing what he's doing for Tottenham Hotspur, Jose Mourinho is probably helping turn England's national team into a better team as well. Because uh, to me, Harry Kane is so influential to what that team does. And if his game is raised another level in the Prem and he can carry that over into international play, England's really going to be a handful. Uh, Sunday, big top of the table type clash with Tottenham and Chelsea. A quick thought on Manchester City, Jeff. They scored over 100 goals last year. They had 22 shots at the net in this match against Tottenham. Uh, and even with all those 22 shots, I, I don't know if I felt that they were all that dangerous. They really, they miss Sergio Aguero. Um, and it, it's it's just become too often a game storyline where they own the ball, they have a bunch of chances, but they lack finish. And that's now been the story for more than a season with Manchester City. I'll tell you what else concerns me about Manchester City. And I, I haven't noticed it in Champions League matches as much. But all I hear from Pep Guardiola, all I've heard from him for the past couple of weeks, and I agree with him on this, is that you need to have more than three substitutions per game, right? You've got to go back to the five substitutions we saw when the Premier League came out of the, the pandemic shutdown. And I agree with him on that. And certainly other managers have felt the same way. Jurgen Klopp has been very clear about that. But I look back to this weekend, and watching Ber Bernardo Silva and Riyad Mahrez were, were offering him nothing. They were giving him absolutely nothing in that mm -hmm. match. And I just, I cannot believe that he waited as long as he waited to make those substitutions. You know, and, and, and we saw that, um, you know, uh, against them in, in the Liverpool match. When Guardiola, we thought he had Phil Foden ready to come on, and then he changed his mind at the last minute. And that kind of surprises me because we just assume that one of Pep Guardiola's strengths is his ability to adjust on the fly. And I'm not seeing that this year. I'm seeing it's not as if he's just throwing up his hands. But I'm seeing a Manchester City team that at times just seems completely bereft of ideas. And that's, that's shocking. That's absolutely shocking. With all the attacking options and yet uh, just can't find a way through. And, and you could just sense their confidence being shattered 
with every passing minute that went by that they couldn't break down Tottenham's defense. And by the end of it, uh, you know, Tottenham was just um, all over them and, and, and they just didn't have anything. They didn't have the energy and you could feel the buy-in for Mourinho. That's not mm-hmm. right there for, for Pep Guardiola right now. Uh, but we'll see how this plays out. They've got a lot of, uh, they've got a lot of work to do for the team that we both uh, picked as uh, the preseason title favorite. Uh, I, I don't know if Yeesh. we can see them as that. Uh, anymore, but uh, they'll get on a run at some point. The question is just when and how late on into the season it will be. Uh, Alfonso Davies listed as a finalist for the UEFA Golden Boy Award. He finishes behind Ansu Fati of Barcelona, who finishes in second. And uh, the winner of the award this year, and it shouldn't be too much of a surprise to anybody, is Erling Haaland, who... Uh, what do you have, a four spot on the weekend for Dortmund to yeah. kind of celebrate his Golden Boy Award? Uh, pretty impressive. But I, I think the takeaway here is, Jeff, Alfonso Davies is a left back. You, you don't normally see players in that position get this kind of love for this type of award. No, and I think, you know, my initial reaction to it was, look, I'm not surprised that Holland uh, – Holland was named. I mean, he he's a uh, he's a wonderful offensive player. He was very much one of the big stories of you know European football this year. So I don't think anybody, regardless of how parochial you are, I, I, I don't think you can be surprised that that he won the award. I was a little surprised that Davies didn't finish second, but you know, especially given the success that Bayern had and given the critical praise that came his way from just about every commentator and, and all his teammates. But I think you're right. You know, the left left back is becoming more and more of a position of, of, of prominence in football, but it's, you're, you're never going to be up there with the guy who's going to score a ton of goals, right? You're, that that's still the currency when people vote for these awards. And, and, and I'm with you. I, I guess I could quibble about him not finishing second, but I think when you when you sit back and look at it, you know you would you would have to say, my goodness, for a young left back to uh, to finish third, that's that's certainly not embarrassing. The other nominee for Canada, which is crazy, Jeff. It's still you got to pinch me every time. You know, the, there wasn't one Canadian nominated for the Golden mm-hmm. Boy Award. There was two. The other being Jonathan David, who had an incredible season at Ghent, which earned him a record money move to Lille in Ligue 1. But it has not been a great start for his life at Lille until this weekend. A goal and an assist marked uh, improving play from Jonathan David with his new club. And joining us now to talk about it is Jonathan Johnson, Ligue 1 expert, also covers the Champions League for CBS Sports. It is Jonathan Johnson. Thanks for this, Jonathan. How are you? Hey there, guys. Very well, thank you. And you both, thanks for having me on. Yeah, we're uh, we're glad to have you on. Uh, it's uh, it's been fun watching. Uh, you know, there's there's so much talk here in Canada about Alfonso Davies, obviously, but Jonathan David is making his way more into the scene after his big transfer to Lille this this off season, and he finally got his first goal. It's it's been touch and go, but he's finally off the mark. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm very happy for him. You know, his recent performances have actually been quite good. They just haven't, you know, had that goal, that payoff, uh, you know, to, you know, for, for him to be able to show real tangible evidence of, uh, of, of his improvement with, uh, with the team. But he's now got it. Uh, you know, he's, he's got that monkey off of his back. And I expect him to, you know, be able to build on that, go on to bigger and better things. And he's part of a very exciting uh, Lille attack at the moment. I mean, I know the guy grabbing all of the headlines is Yusuf Yazici, who's scored those two hat tricks in the in the Europa League and, and got amongst the goals again uh, in Ligue 1 over the weekend. But you know, Jonathan David, his role in that attack, you know, he's as much a provider as he is. A, 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 he's you know equally a maker and, and taker of goals. And I think you know now we're seeing him on the score sheet. We're going to see even more interplay between him and those attacking teammates. You know, Yazici is not the only Turkish guy that got an attack. They got Burak Yilmaz as well. You got Jonathan Bomba, who's you know a very exciting, uh, attack-minded uh, Frenchman. Uh, Jonathan Ikone as well. So there's a lot of very exciting young talents in that attack. And you know, Jonathan David is is finally starting to find his place among them, which is really encouraging. Jonathan, is his role different with Lille than it was with Ghent? 
Yeah, I mean, there's there's less of a defined role for him in the Lille attack. You know, he's not as much the talisman uh, as he was uh, when he was playing in Belgium after, you know, his fast start to, to life there. Uh, you know, he's at the very beginning, he was often seen as the main, uh, you know, source of the goals, or it was assumed he'd be the main source of the goals in the attack. And I think uh, Christophe Gertier has done a good job in in terms of taking that responsibility off of his shoulders uh, and making it more of a collective effort uh, in terms of getting those goals now. And I think that's why you're seeing somebody like Yazici, uh, you know, often finding himself finishing off uh, moves that are, are very well crafted. You know, there's quite a lot of team goals that they're scoring, uh, you know, and David plays a, a good role in, uh, in the build-up to those, but he's not weighed down anymore by this uh, expectation that he's going to be the guy scoring goals in prolific numbers uh, that was there at the very beginning. And I think he found quite daunting when he first arrived in Lille. Well, and, you know, he was the like-for-like, like, I guess, replacement for Ozimen, who uh, went off to Napoli in a big-money move. But they're, they're not uh, quite similar players, uh, despite playing in similar areas of, of the pitch. It was... It was always going to be a difficult task for to ask Jonathan David to to fill the shoes of of Victor Osimhen. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Osimhen, uh, the way that he just exploded uh, onto the scene uh, after he was signed by Lille, you know, had a very very uh, rich spell of form in Belgium. I think that you know there are parallels there between David and, and Osimhen because obviously both of them uh, found it. Uh, you know, uh, they they enjoyed. Uh, you know, scoring goals in large amounts uh, when they were playing in Belgium. Uh, and, you know, Aussie men was able to hit the ground running with Lille. Didn't quite work out the same way for, for David. But like you said, you know, they are quite uh, different players. You know, Aussie men, uh, you know, he is a very, very physical uh, presence uh, Perhaps needs to work on his aerial ability a little bit, but he's you know he's almost a, a complete striker. Whereas Jonathan David is is somebody who I'd say is more technical uh, than an Aussie man, uh, you know. But also his physique, uh, you know, he's, he's he's no you know he's no pushover, but he's also not built uh, in the same way. You know, he's a bit more slight, uh, you know. So I think that the expectation that he would just walk in and, and replace Ozzyman like for like. Uh, from those who were expecting that, you know, was probably a bit uh, a, a bit naive. But I think it's now becoming clear when you're watching the way that this Lille side are playing at the moment in attack. Uh, you know, some of the high scoring matches they're they're part of. Uh, you know, I think their attack has has actually improved despite losing someone of, of great quality in Ozzyman. You know, I think it was back in September that uh, Christophe Galtier talked about sort of his concern about Jonathan David coming in after what was clearly not a regular off season, right? Um, you know, lack of friendlies, just everything being sort of being in turmoil as a result of the pandemic. Did that, do you think, buy Jonathan some time with his new, with his new club? I mean, I think that it's a bizarre season for for every club in European footballers at the moment. You look at the high numbers of injuries, uh, you know, the, some of the strange results that are, that are being churned out. So I think that, you know, everybody has to temper whatever expectations, uh, you know, they, they, they might have had coming into this campaign. Because as you mentioned, you know, it was quite a bizarre uh, off-season. We hadn't really seen anything like that. I mean, I think the thing that probably influenced... Uh, the uh, David's arrival uh, in Lille more than anything was the fact that he made it very clear from the beginning of Lille's interest in him that it was the only place he wanted to go. Yes, there were other clubs interested in him, but he saw Lille as the the ideal place for him to go, for him to develop, to add to his game. Uh, you know, so I think that you know once it was clear that he'd made up his mind and that Lille, uh, you know, had to thrash out a deal uh, in order to get him to the club it sort of added this a, a bit of pressure for him to, to to hit the ground running to prove that he was worth the, the big investment. And there have been, uh, you know, moments where, you know, he's looked frustrated, uh, you know, and sort of asking when the, you know, when the, when the drought might end. But I think, you know, certainly in the last couple of months, you know, we've seen him investing himself more uh, in the team's overall play and, you know, now I think he's he's beginning to to, to benefit from that. And Lille, uh, you know, are one of the clubs who have perhaps benefited best from the the scenario that we find ourselves in at the moment because of the pandemic. Uh, you know, they they're a club who 
sell a lot of players year on year and then bring in players who they hope will be ready for, for first team football, try to add value to them and then, uh, and, and then move them on. So there's always going to be a lot of chopping and changing uh, within, the, within the squad. So at the beginning of each season, you know the the squad that's starting that campaign is is pretty much uh, you know on a on a fresh page, you know, and we've seen uh, guys like Yazici coming back from a very disappointing first campaign, uh, and you know managing to establish himself as a, a regular member of the starting eleven, and we see someone like Jonathan David, who was installed as a, a you know a, a regular starter from the very from the very beginning of his time with the club, but you know has had to sort of work recently to 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 prove that he, he's, you know, he's worth that, uh, that starting role uh, with what he's able to contribute to the team outside of actually putting the ball in the back of the net. What, uh, continuing on that thought, um, Lille, you know, there's a lot of talk always about a PSG, of course, and then uh, Monaco, Lyon, um, but you hear less about Lille and what their project uh, is about. Certainly they've, they've had success growing young players the last couple of seasons, but what's, what's the ambition of a club like Lille, uh, Jonathan? Well, I mean, I think you've got to look at the guy who is the, uh, you know, the architect of this project, Luis Campos, and it's the same guy who managed to put together that exciting Monaco side that we saw a couple of years ago, uh, you know, that went on a deep run in the Champions League, the unseated PSG at the top of Ligue 1. Uh, and you'd have to think that that is Lille's ambition. I mean, you look at their position in the table at the moment, just a couple of points away from PSG at the summit. PSG have already lost three times uh, domestically, and these two will meet uh, before the end of the year, uh, you know, and I think that if if Lille can maintain their current form, obviously they had a blip just before the international break where they lost for the first time. But if they can be re- remain as difficult to beat as they have been, uh, and and continue to balance domestic and continental football in the way that they have, which is quite rare for a French team, in fact, uh, then you know I think that they will emerge as a as a serious challenger for PSG uh, this season. And you know we saw what happened with PSG a few years ago when they lost that league title to Monaco, where you know when PSG aren't fully focused, when they get a bit complacent. They do drop points uh, in the league. Uh, you know, they have dropped points already so far this season. And given the way that things are going at the moment, the current turmoil at the club, Thomas Tuchel's position as coach uh, is far from certain. You, you know, you would bet on PSG dropping points, uh, you know, in other places between now and the end of the season. And if Lille can continue their, their consistency, you know, it's going to be quite close between the two of them, uh, you know, who come who comes out on top because Lille at this moment in time certainly look like the, you know, the strongest threat uh, to, to PSG's uh, title intentions. Jonathan, uh, you, you mentioned PSG there and uh, they lose to Monaco over the weekend, uh, still top of the league, but uh, it's been an odd start the season of course they went to the Champions League final last year I mean Mbappe's future you wonder if if he'll be off to Real Madrid or something of that like uh, next off season Um, just it it kind of feels like a, a a year of transition for for PSG am I am I wrong on that no, I don't think that you are wrong. I mean, I, th- I think it was always going to be difficult for PSG coming into this new season, uh, you know, with so little turnaround time uh, after last campaign and, and going to the Champions League. Uh, the fact that the remainder of the Ligue 1 season uh, w- was cancelled prematurely, uh, the fact that they were thrown straight into two domestic cup finals and then barely got to do any proper pre-season conditioning work. Uh, you know, the, the players look flat out at times, uh, you know, completely fatigued uh with with the with the, with the schedule that they're playing you know every every week in the champions league uh and then every couple of days after that a league match it's you know it's very very difficult very challenging uh and and PSG have had a lot of injuries i mean obviously they lost some big names as well the likes of Thiago Silva Edinson Cavani those guys are very difficult to replace especially when your transfer budget has been so uh, annihilated by the by the coronavirus uh, p- pandemic. I mean, PSG are one of those clubs that really rely on the money uh, that a club brings in on a, on match days, where you've got people coming into the stadium, sitting down, watching a match, buying merchandise afterwards. And without that, PSG are making massive losses. I mean, sporting director Leonardo was speaking just recently uh, in a public Q and A session. 
talking about the losses that PSG have made and, and how it's going to impact them moving forward. So obviously keeping the likes of, uh, of Kylian Mbappe, of Neymar, is going to be a big challenge for, for PSG moving forward. Uh, you know, and the, the need for them to, to do smart business uh, is, is greater than ever at this moment in time. And, you know, the, the, the move to, to permanently sign Mauro Icardi, who's been struggling with injury massively so far this season, uh, you know, back uh, before the summer, you know, seems to look more and more questionable with every passing week. Icardi uh, won't be featuring against Leipzig, barely featured uh, in the Champions League latter stages last season. Uh, you know, yet PSG dropped, uh, you know, the best part of 60 million euros on him, which is a massive amount of money, especially uh, in, in times of a pandemic like these. So it's, uh, you know, they're, PSG are at a strategic crossroads at the moment and they need to work out exactly how the project is going to evolve uh, from here, whether that includes the coach uh, Thomas Tuchel. And if PSG were to lose against Leipzig, perhaps even draw, uh, you know, it pretty much consigns them uh, to dropping into the Europa League out of the group stages, which is unthinkable for them, especially as they got to the final last season. So, it, you know, you're right. It is a very uh, big transitional moment for PSG at this moment in time. Uh, you know, one sporting director, Leonardo, is absolutely going to have to get right. Jonathan, widening our focus a little bit to the French national team. Uh, what is it about Didier Deschamps that has allowed him to find whatever the key is to unlocking Paul Pogba and, and Antoine Griezmann? I mean, I think the the secret to Deschamps and Pogba's relationship is the fact that Deschamps has given Pogba a great position of responsibility within the French national team, and it's a, it's a responsibility he doesn't have uh, as much of uh, at Manchester United. But also, uh, you know, I'd say that Pogba seems to take his that responsibility more seriously. Uh, with the French national team than he does with with United, uh, you know he, by all accounts, I mean when you listen to some of the players talking about who were the real influential figures in the dressing room during that 2018 World Cup win, so many of them will point to to Pogba, who obviously wasn't captain, uh, you know, but was seen as one of the leaders in the dressing room, as one of the most vocal guys out on the pitch as well, uh, you know, and I think. Pogba has been able to evolve into that character at international level because of the confidence that Deschamps has put in him. And that that is why we see, uh, you know, sort of this uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde uh, situation with, uh, with, with Pogba where, you know, you see a world-class player when he's playing with France, but you see a guy who's very short of confidence and is a complete shadow of himself when he's playing with United. Jonathan, we uh, we always appreciate your time. Uh, appreciate it, and uh, thank you for this today. No, thanks a lot for having me on. It's been an absolute pleasure. You could follow Jonathan at John underscore Le Gossip on Twitter for all things French football, Champions League, and Europa League. Dan Riccio and Jeff Blair, when we return, really excited for our next conversation. Janine Becky, Manchester City and Canadian international forward, joins us next. It is a kick in the grass. Back in on a kick in the grass, it is Dan Riccio and Jeff Blair. Now happy to welcome into the show, it is Janine Becky, Canadian international and Manchester City forward. Thanks for this, Janine. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, guys. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for making time for us. Uh, it's a couple of weeks ago now, but congrats on the FA Cup win and and the goal in the final. It's uh, it's been a great couple of years for you at City, hasn't it? Yeah, thank you. It's it's been really great. Um, obviously, I came to this club to uh, better my career and and me technically, but I also came here to win trophies, and we've been able to do that over the past couple of years. So, a uh, bit of a weird one playing an FA Cup final so early in the season. Um, but yeah, it's it's a fantastic year because we get a chance to win the FA Cup twice in one year, which we hope that that will never be an opportunity again. So um, we're going to go after that second one too. You know, Janine, I think a lot of us who've covered women's soccer or, or have had uh, kids who played women's soccer or anything like that, I mean, we've always kind of felt we have a vested interest in the advancing of the game um, at the professional level, in addition to the international level. 
And I'm just wondering from your point of view, if you could contrast maybe the difference being a professional in the, the, in, in the UK in that league compared to being a professional uh, in North America, just in terms of lifestyle, training, and the technical uh, aspect of the game. Yeah, I think, um, firstly, I would say the leagues are becoming closer and closer and more parallel than ever. Um, so when you compare the NWSL to, say, the WSL here in the UK, um, when I first moved over two and a half years ago, which is wild, um, I would have said that the NWSL is a faster, faster-paced, more... A transitional game and the game over here had maybe a bit of a slower pace um, with more emphasis on the technical side of the game and I th- think that still rings true but I also think that there's um, so much more in common that the leagues have now um, obviously with a lot of internationals going into the NWSL and we've seen some Americans and North Americans obviously myself and a couple other Canadians come over to the WSL it's really starting to even out and I think one thing that's really cool is, you know, for me, eventually I, I want to make my way back into the NWSL. So I'll bring what I've learned here back there. And I think by that time, things will be even even more similar. So obviously both leagues are, are fantastic. Both are very high level. Um, but I think that just being in England with the culture of football that's here and the, the style of play that, you know, the England men's national team and the England women's national team play is a very... Um, possession-oriented technical game, and I think that that really feeds into um, the way that our league is played here, and, and especially at City. How has the environment of being at a, a top club like City helped your development over the last couple of years? I can't imagine being at a club that is run better, that provides better facilities, um, that has more resources and um, you know, high, high quality staff and players. Um, obviously, it's, it's nothing like I've ever seen in my career. And I feel so uh, honored and grateful that I get to play for City. But um, it's just, yeah, it's, it's a fantastic place to be. Um, it's really helped my development as a player and pushed me so, so much technically. Um, you know, you just, if, if you don't raise your game, you don't survive. And I think that that's been really, really important for me. You know, uh, Bev Priestman made a comment when we spoke to her about how one of the things you see in the WSL is because there is an attachment between you know the men's team and the women's team. In other words, because there's there's sort of a, there's a common structure of, of having, for example, you know, being owned and run by Man City. That she said you're starting to see some of the principles align in the women's and men's game in the UK, you know, in other words, I mean, Jurgen Klopp and Pep Guardiola are very much uh, sort of in the ascendancy and, and established in the UK. Same thing with, uh, you know, obviously with Gareth Southgate and that you're starting to see kind of a bleeding over of stuff from the men's game to the women's game. She was saying it in a good way. Do you, do you, do you see that as, as something that's happening? You know, that there's kind of this, uh, that common, there's kind of this, this common element that is going from one game to the other. Absolutely. I think it's a timely question considering Pep just extended his contract with City, which makes us all very happy. Um, but I think when, when I came to the club, obviously Nick Cushing was in charge. Now it's uh, Gareth Taylor. But there's been a very common theme that's aligned with the men's team um, in terms of how they play. And I think for the last couple years, everyone around the world considers City, you know, that, that club that plays really beautiful football and and keeps the ball and, and penetrates and scores great goals that have come from, you know, I think they had a, a goal from one of their uh, games like last week that had like 42 passes before they actually mm-hmm. scored. Um, and I think that's definitely how Nick ran our team, um, you know, very much aligned with the way that Pep coaches and, and Gaz as well. Um, I think it's a, it's a club standard to play really nice football um but at the end of the day we also get it done when it comes to results so um i think we're seeing definitely we've seen pep's style and the style that the men play bleed into our game at city but i think that it rings true for the rest of of the league as well and i think when you look at you know the lionesses and and the men's england team 
it's just high quality football, um, you know, keeping the ball possession based, uh, really exciting to watch. So, yeah, I definitely would echo what Bev said. I know it's it's um, it's been a while since you've been together with the national team, given everything that's going on around the world. But, um, it, you know, do, do you start to feel that effect with the national team as well, with with so many of your teammates there being in more professional environments? You know, you mentioned there's there's others around the FA Women's Super League. Uh, do, do you notice, you know, these different tactical mindsets and this different development going on elsewhere uh, come together with the national team? Absolutely. I think so take someone like Kadisha Buchanan and Ashley Lawrence who have been in France for the last couple of years and were the first two to kind of make, you know, the big move across to Europe. And we saw the impact that that had on them instantly. Um, and they came into camp and their touch was sharp and they were, you know, they wanted to be on the ball. They brought a standard into training. And I think for someone like me, that was really attractive. And uh, I loved seeing that in them. Um, and, and others have followed suit. Obviously, now we have Jordan Heidema at PSG, uh, Adriana Leone at West Ham, Jesse Fleming, Shalina Zdorsky. I mean, there's it's wonderful to see so many Canadians making that move and, and in, in other countries as well. Um, but it's just elevating the level of our team. And that's exactly what we need if we want to keep continue to keep um, competing on the highest stage. And obviously, in this year with with COVID, it's been so great to to be having a, you know, quote, normal season uh, in terms of being able to play games and to be in a training environment. So to have so much of our team being in environments where they're playing games right now is just going to be uh, so great for us in the lead into the Olympics. Janine, tell us what the average day would look like for you. Right now or normally? <laughs> <laughs> okay well uh, both how about that both yeah um i think right now it's it's quite i keep telling my friends i feel like i keep repeating the same day over and over um but yeah we're, we're in in the morning so we get to the facility around 8 30 have breakfast um then we normally have a team meeting we're in the gym to do a bit of a warm-up um and then we're out at on the pitch around 10 o'clock for about an hour and a half two hours and then uh we come back in, we lift, we have lunch, um, and then we're off. So we're in the facility from around 8.30 to 1.30 or 2 in the afternoon. Um, and then right now, I'm just, just coming home and then sitting on the couch. I put all my Christmas decorations up early because I just was, you know, I was like, this is not a normal year. So I'm going to do abnormal things and put Christmas decorations up way too soon. Um, mm. But... Yeah, my days normally look like that outside of COVID too. And, and we're obviously, there's COVID testing thrown in there as well. So I just, I mean, we're very lucky to be at a club um, and in a league that's able to, you know, keep everyone safe and, and be testing us. So I'm, I'm really grateful for that. We mentioned Bev earlier, um, and, and she's coming back into the program. Bev Priestman taking over as, as Canadian national manager. Um, just your initial thoughts of, of Bev returning. Yeah, it's uh, it's cool. I think things really do come all the way around, and it's great to welcome her back into the CSA. Um, we're all really excited for you know a change, and uh, I also would love to say that I think it's great that the CSA has invested in a female head coach. Um, that's something that I think is so important in the women's game is to continue to back female coaches and, and Bev is so qualified for the position and she's so young. I think that's what a lot of people kind of miss is that she's, she's kind of this prodigy in, in women's soccer and, and coaching. And we're just really, really lucky to have her. And we're really excited for her to bring her knowledge from working under Phil at England um, for a while. And then obviously she, she worked with us under John as well. So she's had so much experience and to be able to, now give her the reins to make her own decisions and to lead us. Um, I'm really excited to see her in that role. And we've chatted a few times and uh, she shared her plans with me and, and how she sees, you know, the team playing and what she sees my role as. And, and that's all obviously a very exciting conversation. So, um, yeah, like, like we were talking about earlier, it's difficult because we've not been together in so long. And so everything's happening via Zoom and, you know, WhatsApp messages and all that, but um, we're definitely itching to get together and we're really excited to see, you know, what she's going to bring to the environment. 
Janine, how does she how does she see your role in the team, and and how have you changed as a player? Let's say in the past, I'm just going to say even the last year in NWSL and the first couple of years in WSL. Like, how have you matured as a player? What aspects of your game are have come the farthest? Do you think? I mean, I'm I would say from my last season in the NWSL to now, I'm you know a very very different player. A lot for me has changed. Um, I think when, when you ask, you know, what my role is under Bev, I think she, she sees the transition from, you know, the, the leaders that we've had over the last decade, which have been so important for us. Um, now we'll start to see those players, you know, on the tail ends of their careers in the next couple of years. So she sees, you know, the likes of me, Kidushi Buchanan, Ashley Lawrence, Rebecca Quinn, um, Jesse Fleming as this, you know, the core leadership group. Um, and, and I hope that I can take that role and, and run with it. But I think from a, you know, my technical side of my game has gone just to a whole new level. Um, and I credit that to being at city and just under Nick Cushing, you know, his thing was if, if you can't be consistently technically good in training, then, you know, you're not going to be on the pitch for us. So that's obviously a big statement to make, but he, you know, he stayed true to that. And same with Gareth Taylor. He has big expectations for how players um, can control the ball. Can you, you know, set the ball on one touch? Can you turn in tight spaces? And all these things have been a huge challenge for me since I came over to England, but have paid dividends for me massively. Um, and I see that that a lot in my game now, um, just able to do things with a bit more ease and then kind of use the things that were, you know, already kind of refined in my game, you know, using my pace, my crossing ability, my finishing ability, and kind of just starting to build uh, what I hope to be, you know, a more well-rounded version of myself from being here. Is, is there any um, thought or idea as to what the national team picture looks like in the new year? Uh, we're constantly getting new information, um, as I'm sure everyone is in the world right now. Things seem to change almost every week. Uh, unfortunately, there is no window uh, until February after this this one that has actually just started, which unfortunately we, we aren't using due to COVID obstacles. But um, we're hoping for February. The plans are really up in the air, but um, there tends to be some really exciting tournaments that go on in that time of year. So we want to get the best opposition that we can play the best games that we can, uh, because obviously we're not too far from what we hope will be the Olympics. So, um, we just really, really want to get together. I think people are, are just excited to see one another because by that point it will be uh, a year since we've been together, which is wild. Jenny, one of the things that has kind of become obvious to those of us on this side of the, this side of the pond is, you know, those of us who follow football or, the culture of it, whether it's consuming it through reading or podcasts, it seems as if the media in the UK is giving, and again, this is from a distance, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems as if the women's game is getting more and more coverage and has become more and more a part of sort of that, the soccer culture in the UK. Is that a correct read on my part? Absolutely. I think you're spot on. Um, I always try and have, you know, a, a growth mindset about about the media and what can change. And I still think that there's a massive area for growth there um, all over the world. But obviously, I'm, I'm engaged in the media here in the UK. But I do have to say they do a wonderful job. Um, I think a lot of that is the credit to, you know, the women's national team with England. They had a great World Cup in 2015 and then again had a great World Cup in 2019 and I think started to really shed light on the importance of football and just, you know, how talented the players here are and, and the league here is, is very, very good. And I think um, the more exposure that we've been given as players and as teams has just, for, for the most part, I think been really well received. Um, and I think especially at Sydney, they do such a wonderful job giving, you know, equal exposure to both men's and women's teams um we have separate twitter accounts but but they're posting you know women's content on the man city twitter it's not you know the man city men's mm -hmm. team and the man city women's team it's it's just man city and i think that that's really cool and then same on instagram 
and and we have had some awesome engagement from some of the men's players that are really interested in our team and, and that's really really cool as well so uh, I also think the launch of the FA player last year uh, which obviously gave the ability for people to watch our games all around the world was absolutely fantastic and then um, this year there's just been more games broadcast on TV than ever before. Um, and I think that that's just, that's the direction that the game is going in. It's absolutely necessary for our sport to continue to get that kind of exposure. And um, it's helpful when you have a domestic league, you know, in the UK to cover. Um, and obviously we don't have that in Canada, which is something that we desperately want and need, um, which hopefully will happen sometime in the near future. But yeah, I think the media is doing a fantastic job giving us the exposure that we deserve. Yeah, we can uh, we can only hope that uh, there's there's a league here in Canada in the in the short term. It's it's desperately needed. Uh, Janine, this is this has been a lot of fun. Really appreciate your time, and uh, all the best moving forward. And uh, happy holidays. I guess we're getting to that time of year as well. Wild, uh, isn't it that it's already Christmas time? But thank you guys so much for your time. Um, always happy to chat. You can watch Janine and other Canadian internationals like Jesse Fleming, Shalina Zadorsky in the FA Women's Super League on Sportsnet. Matches every weekend. Visit sportsnet.ca slash schedule for more information. When we return, we close out the show with injury time. Your questions for us here on A Kick in the Grass. Final segment of a kick in the grass and an update on our fantasy league at PremierLeague.com. The Van Gaal Blatters have survived yes. an early season relegation scare and have moved up to 13th in the table with a massive, yes, a massive 86 points this week. A clean sheet from Bernd Leno. Goals from Jota, Son, Calvert-Lewin, and uh, Captain Bruno Fernandes uh, led the way to the massive points haul for manager Jeff Blair. Uh, also, Shazeb Butt of Streeterville was the closest competitor on 74 points, led by 21 from his three-man back line. Well, shouts, Jeff. You're moving your way up the table. Just like Manchester United, man. 13. 10th <laughs> <clears throat> place, here we come. Uh, 22 points for Bruno Fernandes. Only he, he had only one. He scored one from the penalty spot. I couldn't figure it out. Anyways, um, I'll uh, I'll digress. Uh, you, you made the right captain choice this week. Uh, it is injury time. Let's get to the questions. Deanna tweeting in at Danrico underscore. Uh, will Canada medal again at the Olympics? Um, as you know, a couple of bronze medals over the last couple of uh, sequences, but. Uh, does Canada have it in them again, Jeff? Yeah, I. it's really hard to tell. And I, you know, I don't mean to, to dodge the question there. I mean, I, yeah, I think they're good enough to medal. I have absolutely no doubt about that. But I, I just don't know. I, I just don't know how you compensate for the lack of match, you know, of match play on the part of the national team. Now, let's see. We've got some time. Uh, we've got some time before the Olympics. We, you know, we have a new coach coming in. Um, certainly, the talent's there. Uh, I think, in a lot of ways, this will be the most talented women's team we've had uh, at the Olympics. But I just, I, I don't, I don't know. Given the nature of the season, uh, you know, uh, I, I would. It, it's just, it's, it's, it's difficult. It really is. I, uh, the, the one thing, um, you know, in, in tournaments, especially short tournaments like an Olympics, uh, Christine Sinclair, uh, as your finisher, was great in, in the last two cycles. She's not really that player anymore. She still scores, mm -hmm. sure, but she's not the elite finisher that she once was. She can be a little bit more facilitator. She'll play a little bit deeper to get more touches on the ball uh, now at this stage of, of her career. So... Uh, Canada's going to need somebody to get really hot from a finishing standpoint, I think, to, to have a chance uh, at another medal at the upcoming Olympics next summer. Uh, Vic on Instagram, is Messi really the problem at Barcelona? As uh, Who was it? Antoine Griezmann's uncle is now calling out Lionel Messi? I mean, this is, this is getting out of hand, Jeff. But uh, another loss for Barcelona over Atletico Madrid, and now just one goal in his last... One goal in open play in his last 16 matches for Lionel Messi. 
Yeah, and if you listen to Ronald Koeman's, it sounds as if he will not uh, he will not play in 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 Champions League. As if he'll set out, he'll sit out Messi. Uh, yeah, he's part of the problem. I still think the biggest issue with Barcelona has been for the past couple of years their board more than anything else. And I think that that the changes occurred there. Let's see how it shakes out, but. Uh, again, if you know, if I was Ronald Koeman's, I I think he I think it was a terrible, terrible career decision on his part, and I, I really do think that it's it's hard to escape Danny the idea that he's basically going to be he's been put in a position to to transition into another manager, you know, to transition into somebody like Javi or something like that coming in and and and, and taking over taking over the team. Messi's not helping, but I think the rot goes much, much, much deeper than Messi. Uh, there's a lot of problems for both of the big clubs there in, in Spain. Even um, Real Madrid uh, is reporting pretty heavy losses as well uh, due to the, the pandemic. So it's, it's going to be a little bit of a transition time for both Barcelona and for Real Madrid. Messi, not the sole problem at Barca right now. Jerry on Twitter, our final question. Uh, will Pep see out this new two-year extension at City? Yeah, I think he will because I think he's smart enough to look around and realize that the financial fallout from the pandemic, it's its not just going to be this year. It's not going to be the year after. We're probably we're probably looking at something that, that it's going to be around for at least, at least three years before you know, before every league, not just soccer, but before every league and every sport kind of gets back into its normal financial, you know, its normal financial situation. And, and I can see Guardiola finishing out this contract, taking a year off, doing kind of what Pochettino has done, uh, doing, in fact, what Guardiola himself has done in the past, you know, take a year off and, and keep his powder dry and uh, sort of cherry pick his, his next job. But I have no doubt he'll see this extension out. Questions for us anytime at DanRicho underscore and at SN Jeff Blair. Back next Monday with another edition for producer Cam Bear and my co-host Jeff Blair. Thanks for listening. This has been a kick in the grass.